everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bomb. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So on today's live stream, I welcome back Austin Lefebvre. Hi, Austin. What's up, man? Welcome back. Thank you, Keith. Thank you so much for having me back. Very excited to be here today for another episode of Rapping with Reef Bomb. Yeah, yeah, man. We got a whole bunch of people tuning in, and, and I welcome everybody uh, to the live stream. I think you've got a bunch of your coworkers. That are watching uh, right now, they, uh, they're they going to be busting your chops perhaps. I don't know. But uh, we're going to have a lively discussion about uh, tank maintenance tonight. And just to remind everybody in terms of uh, Austin's background, Austin is the uh, Director of Residential and Commercial Accounts at Tenji Aquarium Design and Build, which is based in Carmel, California. Tenji specializes in custom aquatic systems for public aquariums, residential, and commercial clients. Prior to joining Tenji, Austin founded and owned Aquabox. He has been in the aquarium industry since 2002 and is known for building immaculate, immaculate aquarium systems and is recognized throughout the industry for his knowledge and understanding of marine fish breeding, care, and quarantine practices. Austin has been published in Reefs Magazine, Reefs.com, and Reef Edition Magazine. He has presented at MACNA the Michigan Coral Expo, and a Manhattan Reef Frag Swap. So before we start the chat with Austin, I want to take care of some business and thank the sponsors of the show, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate their support, and I also appreciate everybody out there that's been tuning in and supporting the show as well. Please spread the word, and as per usual, we um, are going to encourage you folks to drop your comments in the chat and ask a lot of questions. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, maintenance, so have those maintenance questions ready. And uh, see a bunch of uh, familiar faces out there. Reef Keeper, Wade Riles, Great Bearded Reef. Thank you, Paul, for uh, for joining. And um, the Herm 14. So Austin, man, it. Um, I think the last time you were on the show was about a year ago, and and we uh, we we had a nice conversation. So just. Um, for the folks that might have missed that episode of Rapid, can you give everybody just a brief overview of what, um, you know, what Tenji is all about and what you do for them? Yeah, absolutely. So Tenji is a, uh, we're a design and build firm. We have two offices. One is in Carmel, California, where I'm based. That's kind of our headquarters. The other is in uh, Maine, Demariscotta, Maine, I believe is how you pronounce it. That's um, that's that's office. new, right? I don't, re- I don't recall Maine before uh, last year. Was that... Uh, a new a new office you guys just opened up it's not new um it's 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 been existing for a while we just don't um our headquarters is here so we kind of talk about being from here most of the time our workshop is here so anytime we're bringing together a bigger project it kind of gets gets based here and then shipped out um the co-owner of tenji lives in maine um, where he's from, and it gives us a great opportunity when we have issues in the field or a new client request, we can get to pretty much anywhere in the country fairly quickly. Um, so while we do uh, worldwide work, we try to stay stateside. Um, logistically wise, travel wise, we are all humans with families um, that we want to get back to at some point. Um, so we we have the ability to get anywhere in the U.S. pretty fast with two offices. Um, so yeah, we're a, we're a design and build firm. We actually have kind of three separate departments. We have design, we have build, and then we have a maintenance arm. Mm. The maintenance arm is the one we'll really get into today. Um, of course, any tank that we build locally or even semi-locally uh, needs to be maintained. Um, we go about an hour, hour and a half radius outside of our showroom here in Carmel, 
Anything beyond that, we have to go and 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 find a maintenance team um, locally if it's for a client that's not a public aquarium, not a science center, um, someone that needs help, basically. Um, so Tenji prides itself in building extremely robust systems. We're not always going to be putting out the newest equipment, the latest and greatest, because we want to know that it works. We want to know what happens when it fails, and we want to know that the distributor or the vendor is going to support us when it does fail. Um, we'll get into failures in a little bit, but it's important to remember that everything will fail. Not if, just when. So hopefully it's 20 years down the line and not two weeks down the line. Um, but in, in a nutshell, we do mostly design and build for public aquarium and science centers. We do uh, historically some residential work and in commercial buildings that has started to pick up quite a bit um, through coronavirus. Our kind of the public aquariums uh, obviously got pretty quiet. They weren't selling any more tickets. Um, and then the hobby started to pick up some more. Mm. Um, so, you know, if, if people are interested in, um, they're going on reef to reef or, or a forum and they're doing a lot of their own, um, due diligence to figure out reef keeping, uh, they might pick up a Red Sea reefer and install it for themselves. We totally support that type of, uh, reefer aquarist. And that's where a lot of people get started. Now, when that aquarist decides to put a 300 gallon tank in their wall with a remote life support system, um, and we need to be involved with architect, architects or interior designers, uh, that's really when Tenji starts to shine. Um, we put together full design documentation packages that any architect um, can 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 walk through. Um, any any builder uh, knows how to communicate with us, and we can speak their lingo too regarding clevis hangers and all kinds of weird way to mount pipe in the ceiling and and the walls. That uh, as a young aquarist, Austin had no idea what the heck anybody <laughs> was talking about when when that came up. But you know, uh, all the pipes are underneath the tank, right? Um, on small tanks, yes. On big tanks, no. Um, so we really start to, uh, to, to, to shine when that type of documentation becomes required. Um, with that said, we do beta tanks. I mean, we do little tanks for, for, for local businesses all the time. Um, so in, in a nutshell, we're, we're just kind of that next step after you don't want to put it together online yourself. We're the people who, who bring it together on a larger scale and make sure that the outcome is what you're desiring uh, from the beginning. Uh, so just a couple of comments here. Uh, Blue Reef is wondering if, if that is a new kind of fish in the picture behind you. That's a yak, isn't it? Or is it some sort of... Uh... <laughs> That's actually uh, like my wife's favorite animal. It's a highland cow. Ah, um, there you go. There's there a go. farmer not too far from us that has two of them. And every time we go to eat over there, she's always like, oh my gosh, there's my cow. So that was a gift to her a while back. Uh, last time we did this, I was in another room. Um, this this happened to work better for me. So um, it's a cowfish that can't swim, believe it or not. <laughs> well, all right. Now, um, what's the uh, the other um, thing I want to – oh, uh, just a, a random question here, and I, I want to just ask it before uh, we forget about it. Um, Coach Sid, does he have any, Austin, any decent-sized builder tanks he takes care of with any big ro roller mats? I know MRC came out with a good size one and some of the really big commercial pond size ones. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that'll be interesting to uh, kind of like talk about roller mats and maintenance and, and that stuff. But um, how, how often do you guys do uh, systems with roller mats? Um, so at this point, I can say we have officially done none uh, <laughs> wow. with Tenji. We have some in testing. Um, Austin has used them independent of Tenji in the past. Um, <clears throat> they're getting much better. 
I am extremely intrigued with them. I think it has every potential to be the next step for the pre-filter and replacing filter socks if people are using filter socks. If you're not using filter socks, then there's no reason to, to consider a roller um, because it's basically a, a direct replacement for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I suppose some people still might be using like a pre-filter pad, a bonded pre-filter pad and a wet dry type filter. It's, it's kind of the same concept as that. My personal initial experience with them, now this was probably eight years ago when I got my hands on kind of the first available units. Um, they smelled pretty bad. Mm. Uh, at the, the one fresh roll would roll over into the old roll. Um, if you were overfeeding just a little bit or had a heavy bio load, a lot of waste would get trapped in there, a lot of detritus. And then as the dirty roll rolls up, you basically have a stinky roll of paper towel underneath your aquarium stand. Um, there has been some improvements in that. I know that a couple of the commercial producers of them now basically just have them spin faster. Hmm. Um, and of course that is a user controlled thing in most of those units. So basically get the old roll out faster than we used to, and it'll stink less. Um, so I, I also, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that, um, you know, I think that's a really good question to kind of kick off this maintenance conversation because, um, I, I, my understanding is that roller mats would be, uh, less, you know, um, less maintenance required versus filter socks. Um, I've never used roller mats and, and what I've heard about roller mats is that you have to have low flow right through the sump for those to be effective. I don't know if that's, um, you know, true in all cases, but that, um, you know, makes me kind of take pause because I like to keep an SPS dominated tank. And I also like to have return pumps that uh, add to the circulation within my display tank. So that's kind of like why I've never considered ro roller mats. But is that true? Is it just going to be a lot less maintenance versus filter socks where you might have to change a filter sock more than once a week? Correct. Uh, in my opinion, it's to save on maintenance from filter socks. Um, I... I, I, I do know that a couple of the earlier commercial units that kind of like dropped right into a four inch filter sock hole, for example, had surprisingly low flow rates um, mm -hmm. available on them. They have seemed to improve that. Um, we, I, I can say we are testing an MRC unit and it has, it has pretty high flow rate capabilities. Um, I am drawing a blank on it. We have several inch and a half returns or, or drains going into the unit um, with pretty substantial flow. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but that is something that those vendors will start to, 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 to creep up on is, hey, let's be able to put 10 times turnover through the sump if we want to with these filter socks. Another way I'd seen it done is some people just divert the additional water away from the initial unit. Um, I'm not a fan of that. I, I, I would personally go back to filter socks or, or run nothing at all. Um, if you're diverting some of the water away, then we're not pre-filtering. Um, we're pre-filtering a certain amount, but that just seems kind of silly. So yeah, um, I, I think there's a lot of good that can come from them. The one thing I will say that we'll get into a little bit more with the rest of maintenance is the last thing I ever want to do is replace uh, uh, something like a filter sock that literally requires zero maintenance besides change them. Yeah. Uh, they can't fail, right? Like filter socks cannot fail. The only way they could fail is if you don't change them, they overflow. Right. Uh, most of your sumps will have a, a bypass slot in there to let water go, go around if that happens. Um, but that also means that we're being... Uh, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but it means we're being a lazy aquarist um, yeah. or, uh, you know, something catastrophic happened if, 
your kid dropped a washcloth in the filter sock and it slowed flow down enough or something. Um, kind of seeing it all nowadays, but I think they're amazing. I really think the concept, the theory of, of, um, rollers are amazing. I think my maintenance team will be over the moon when we can eliminate filter socks. Um, but what we have done in the office, you know, we use a washing machine, we have a dedicated washing machine. So, it's it's not a huge ask to still be relying on filter socks in in a lot of tanks. I I'm excited for the rollers. I'm not completely sold on them yet. Thanks, uh, Rob Upstate New York, for that super chat. Uh, the comment is: Here's to dirty filter socks in my washing machine. Wife's favorite. <laughs> um, I I used to put my uh, filter socks. I, I have uh, I have two uh, roll exclusive uh, dream box, so I've got nylon filter socks now. So I, I wash them with a uh, with a garden hose and the slop sink. So I don't use sure. I don't use the uh, the washing machines anymore. But um, when I used to use the washing machine for filter socks, I um, I just threw them in hot water and I did not put any um, bleach in the um, in the washing machine. Bleach okay. I mean I've always I always hesitated about putting bleach in the washing machine because I was like you never know if that stuff can actually get absorbed and transfer into the tank. But I guess a lot of folks do that. Totally. Um, we have a pretty uh, shareable protocol that that we've used with public aquariums. I'm, I'm I'm confident that some of it actually came from a public aquarium, but. Um, so, so to back up a little bit, there's kind of two options of filter socks. We have the mesh, which is a nylon generally, or, or a fleece. I'm a huge fan of the mesh ones for a lot of home aquarists because you can simply flip them inside out, spray them yep. out. Uh, my last personal tank, I had two filter socks. I believe I actually only owned six filter socks. And, you know, a couple times a week or at least once a week, I would literally rinse it out and put it right back into use. When that one developed a hole, I would throw it out and get a new one. Um, fleece filter socks require significantly more maintenance. They are arguably going to do a much better job than nylon because they're going to catch more. Yeah. So yeah. for our local maintenance accounts, we do use fleece socks. It adds that additional kind of final polishing step, if, if, if not anything else. Um, and, and for, for fleece socks, we do like to use a washing machine. Um, we do use bleach. Um, it's important to, uh, we buy the, literally the cheapest bottom shelf bleach you can find at your store, because generally speaking, there's going to be no additives in there. That's the big mm. thing we want to watch for. Um, 8.75% sodium hypochlorite percentage is your standard bleach. Um, so all of our calculations are done with that. There are some scented options, have to avoid all of those. There are some splashless options, definitely avoid those. There's a funky ingredient in that to make sure that when you're pouring it, it doesn't splash as much. And uh, we accidentally bought some of that one time and had some pretty interesting results. No mm. animals were harmed or anything. We just couldn't get the darn bleach to dissipate for, for whatever reason. We looked at the bottle and it was a splashless bleach. It was totally different. See, that's why I fear uh, using bleach. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, like, you know, Spartan brand dollar store, whatever bleach you can find, it's straight bleach. There will be a percentage on there. Uh, 8.75% again is the common 8.25, sometimes too, depending where you're at. Edward um, Marr says, awesome. The nice term is generic. Damn it. Darn it. <laughs> generic. <laughs> yes. Generic bleach. Um, they say darn it or damn it. No, I think darn it. Okay. <laughs> if he's on the clock, he said, darn it. Um, so that we rinse the socks out, get all of the major stuff out, um, by flipping them inside out. And then, and then basically we keep them wet. 
Um, if you keep them wet, once they go into the washing machine, they're going to wash a lot easier for you. Uh, keeping them wet is as simple as putting them in a brute can or a five gallon bucket with tap water. Um, that water is going to stink. If you keep mm. six, seven, eight socks in there, so put a top on it. Then when you're ready, pull the socks out, put it in the washing machine. We just do a standard white load on there. Um, if you're using your home washing machine, you want to make sure to flush it. If you've done a clothing load with any type of soap in there. Um, so that's why we, yeah. you know, we have the dedicated machine in there and that would probably be for a home hobbyist, the, the biggest thing to, to be nervous about after we've identified the correct bleach, make sure you don't have any residual soap in there. Yeah, I'm sure I've had residual soap, uh, get into my fish tanks over the years and, and, uh, cause I didn't do any flushing of the, uh, sure. of the washing machines and, um, I don't know, but I, I always just seem to have pretty good luck with it. But, um, how often would you say you should be changing out a filter sock? Just that depends on the system in terms of the, um, you know, the bio load and, and the amount of, um, you know, stuff that needs to be, you know, mechanically filtered out is like one. I, I used to do it like once a week. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, depending on your bio load, the size of the system, the amount you're feeding, the type of socks you're running, you know, if we're running like a nylon mesh sock, um, you can hold it up to the light and you can kind of see through the, the checkered pattern. Um, you know, so you can probably get a week out of those pretty easily, even a felt sock, you're going to get a week out of, um, generally speaking. And I mean, our maintenance accounts were, were there once a week, uh, at least I would say most of our accounts are, are, are weekly. So we don't have the opportunity to change them more than once a week. Um, we're never going in there and finding a filter sock overflowing. Here's a caveat with filter socks. <clears throat> People get themselves into trouble if they're running them and they do not clean them. Hmm. If your filter sock is down there and it's brown, you're doing more harm than good. The entire point of a filter sock, a pre-filter pad or roller is to remove detritus, excess food and waste out of the water before it breaks down into nitrate and phosphate, which is algae fuel. If we're letting everything collect in this sock and just break down in the sock and turn brown and we're never changing them, you're doing more harm than good. Because if you remove that sock, you give your protein skimmer an opportunity to pull that crap out. Some of it might get sucked back up in the supply pump. Maybe fish will start to pick at that. Maybe it becomes coral food or plankton, if you will. So if we're using filter socks of any type, any style, we have to make sure that they're changed frequently. Now, changing them once a day is super aggressive. That's ideal in theory because we're removing yeah. it as soon as possible. Yeah. But it's way over the top and we're supposed to be enjoying these things. So once a week is good for most people. I don't think I've ever had to instruct someone to, to do it more than once a week. Um, the one time I know I do it more than once a week is in quarantine systems when we're heavily loading them with fish. Mm. Um, right now I have a quarantine system at the office with like 50 fish in it. They're all pretty small, but I pack them tight in quarantine. It keeps aggression down. There's other reasons behind it. Suffice to say I'm changing or at least cleaning those filter socks two, three times a week. Soon as I look down and I see a little bit of tan in them, I'll spray them out put them back in. Once they're tan again, I change them. Um, so it's just really important to understand that any filter sock or, or pad like that, it is a pre-filter before the rest of our filter is supposed to do its job. If we're not taking care of that pre-filter, eliminate it. Great Bearded Reef says he's going to be uh, washing 30 socks uh, tomorrow, if I'm, if I'm reading that uh, correctly. <laughs> that's uh, that's going to be quite the, the load of uh, filter socks there, Paul. Um, yeah. we got different comments here in terms of frequency of people that are, uh, washing, uh, reef the sea forever, I think is saying changes, changes the socks out about every four days and, uh, reef the sea forever also made a comment that's interesting in terms of, um, 
takes the socks out of the sump um, when he goes on vacation. Is that um, something that you would recommend for folks that uh, kind of might be on the uh, on the cusp in terms of needing to change out the filter socks more than once a week? If you go away from vacation on a um, you know for one week or greater, is it just does any harm in t pulling those filter socks out and just letting the system run without the mechanical filtration? It's a really interesting question. I'm really excited to hear that someone's thinking like that when they go on vacation. I have two trains of thought in this. Number one, if you're worried that your sock's going to overflow when you're gone for that long, it's probably not a bad idea to, to, to do that. But number two, and this is huge, try it when you're home. Yeah. Pull your filter sock out, leave it out for two weeks or the longest you think you'd ever be on vacation and see what happens. Um, I think it's a long shot, but I'm just thinking if a big chunk of food or something makes its way down into the drain, somehow gets all the way through your sump and gets lodged up in your supply pumps impeller, that would really suck um, because now we have a supply pump that's not running quite as well. The same thing could happen in the skimmer pump, get caught in the volute, get sucked right into the pump. I have a hard time thinking that your tank's going to have a major issue for a skimmer that's hobbling along for a couple days. Yeah. The important thing to note for any type of changes we're doing for vacation is to try it when you're home. And try not to think about it. Like try and pretend that you're gone, right? And and then when you go for vacation, you won't have any questions. My gut is that that's a very good idea if that aquarist is worried about you know potential sock overflow in the meantime. The other thing they could probably do is let's say they're using like a tight micron felt sock. You could use a, a, a looser micron nylon sock like Keith is using. Um, that's going to give you those things really don't clog. You'd have to leave it in there for, for like a month, you know, maybe longer. I don't know. Um, but you're still going to have all that stuff building up. So if you're not able to change it out, it's kind of one of those things you have to weigh. But definitely try it before you leave would be my recommendation. So speaking of vacation, <clears throat> would you say generally it's a bad idea to perform a lot of maintenance, heavy maintenance on a tank like the day before vacation or um, – or is that okay? You know, I've always kind of like, you know, abided by the theory that um, I never want to make any major changes to my tank right before I go away on vacation. But I just kind of was wondering in terms of tank maintenance, you know, should just stay away from cleaning return pumps or um, skimmer pump or, or something big like that, like the day or two before vacation. Should you just kind of like do um, changing out filter socks or cleaning the skimmer cup type of stuff? Yeah, I, I'm, we're Tenji's right there with you, Keith. Um, we are always a little skeptical to be doing any type of, even if it's a prophylactic cleaning, like if we're just thinking about this right before vacation, let's save it for after vacation. Let's save it so that we know that that thing's going to be running for, I, I, this is throwing a dart into the dark, but maybe a couple few days that you can actually look at the system before you go. Um, if my wife was here, she'd tell you that I am notorious for running around like a chicken with my head cut off for three days, like very little sleep prior to vacation to the point that I've been on a couple of vacations and have felt crappy the whole time because <laughs> I was running around so much trying to prep before. This was when I was keeping thousands of fish in a warehouse, uh, in the back. Um, and I would do a ton of stuff before I went. The caveat there is that I would do a ton of stuff every day on those systems. So like I would I would know how a filter would react. I would know how something would react um, it, it, if I was to do a bunch of work. And and I can follow that up by saying that I had coworkers and employees there to make sure that these changes were going smoothly when I was personally gone. 
Um, so, you know, outside of the things that you're used to doing consistently, definitely save it until you get back. I totally understand the concern and the want to do it like the day before you go, make sure it's on top of it. But I think what that should really do is serve as a reminder. Hey, Austin, we need to do this before we're getting ready to leave the day before. Um, and, and just make sure that things are kind of kept on as an even keel as possible prior to vacation. Um, these are great questions though. And I'm really excited that Aquarius are more apt to take vacations nowadays <laughs> with some more automation being available. When I first came into it, all, all of the best reef Aquarius I knew refused to go on vacation. They're like, Nope, I have a reef tank. I don't take vacations. <laughs> um, we're, we're human. We, we need breaks. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's very important to, to, to get a break from your tank too. Just make sure it's ready. So in terms of, uh, tank automation, you know, what, um, <clears throat> what devices out there do you think have really made a big difference in terms of what you guys do in terms of maintaining tanks? So there's <clears throat> lots of trains of thought on automation. Um, there's lots of trains of thought within Tenji on automation and how automated a system should be. Um, personally and, and actually team wide, we always base it on the client we're working with. Um, some people have a tremendous amount of experience. Um, hell, maybe they work in the IT field. Um, some people really like applications on their phone, on their computers. Um, I'm not one of those people. I like switches that I turn on and off. I like gears that I can screw in and screw out. One of my coworkers is absolutely phenomenal with the Neptune Apex system. Um, and he's taught me a tremendous amount with that. Um, so we have the ability to, to automate things to the nth degree or minimally. We are always going to implement a minimum amount of automation. So the number one minimum thing we automate is redundancy. This wouldn't necessarily be automation, but redundancy for your temperature control, for your heaters. Mm. So we like a third-party temperature controller that your heater plugs into in case that heater takes a crap. This can help us be protected. Um, I do that too. Another, I do that too. I, I, I do it. It's, I do it separate from my my main controller. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> let's just say that the third-party independent temperature controllers are significantly more robust than any all-in-one aquarium controller. The probe in that unit, the circuitry in that unit. It's used in industries across the board. I mean, it's used in breweries for your beer. It's used in the food industry. It's used in the automotive industry to keep paint and chemicals at the right temperature. These things are made to do one thing, and that's control temperature and, and not fail. When we look at these all-encompassing aquarium controllers, they're, they're great for a lot of reasons. But we do have to keep in mind, sometimes they might be sneaking in a probe that's not quite to the same quality or robustness as this more specific controller device. And the temperature controllers, they're not terribly expensive. Um, now, don't get me wrong, if you have an all-in-one aquarium controller, it can still serve as a really good backup. So once we have temperature control figured out, we want automated top-off. Um, let, me, let, me, let me ask one quick question before you get the automated sure. uh, top-off. Um, I don't I, you know, sometimes I guess you don't like to mention specific brands, but I'm gonna ask you a specific brand question. What brand do you guys sure. like in terms of temperature controllers? Uh, Renko. Rinko, um, which, which I actually don't know. So we get them. Uh, Aqualogic makes a really fantastic Renko type controller. Um, Aqualogic's in San Diego, California, and they specialize in in, in temperature control devices, uh, heating, cooling, you name it. They have some other really cool things that they offer. Um, I can honestly say that I have not had an independent temperature controller that I didn't like. 
I've used like a JBJ before. We have, I think we have like four brands around the Tenji office actually. What about Phoenix? Uh, Do you like Phoenix? Um, I have no experience with Phoenix, hmm. so I can't comment on that. Do you have them? I do. I, uh, I've been okay. using them for a long time. Seem to be pretty, uh, pretty good, you know. And I also have the, Ranko. Do you have Ranko? Yeah. Okay. I, I think the thing that, just sample size-wise, the thing that we started to get nervous about is these independent temperature controllers, frankly, not really dependent on the brand, just lasted and remained more consistent over time than the probes on all-encompassing temperature controllers mm. or aquarium controllers. Um, and we've been very surprised from those all-in-one temperature probes. Um, actually, a couple times last year, on they weren't old. And, and it was just like, whoa, this tank is 60 what degrees? And thankfully, <laughs> it happened slowly, wow. you know, so all the animals were fine. Uh, we were able to turn it around. But yeah, we've we've been surprised. So I think just having that redundancy and being around your tank, you know, and being super observant is going to go a long way when it comes to temperature controllers like that. All right. So now auto top off. Yeah. So we don't install anything without redundant temperature control. So that would be number one in automation. Number two would be auto top off. We pretty rarely uh, install a system without auto top off nowadays. They're so affordable uh, in the grand scheme of things. They take out a tremendous amount of guesswork, especially in saltwater world. Um, we install them in freshwater tanks too, because who the heck wants to open their stand every couple days or once a day to compensate for evaporation? There's a device that does that for you. It's critical in saltwater, as most of you know, because as water evaporates, everything else stays in the water. Yeah. So it's only the yeah. H2O element that leaves. So as your water evaporates, your salinity raises and all your other parameters start to get out of whack too. So if we can maintain the salinity level by controlling evaporation, um, that's a critical part of automation that we really like. What do you guys like brand-wise um, in terms of auto top-off? Tunzi Osmolator is, is our go-to. Um, the full version of the Tunzi Osmolator. I know they make some nano or mini version. I have a little experience with that. I just don't have enough to really speak a ton on that. I've installed hundreds of the, the standard Tunzi Osmolators and tanks and all sizes of tanks. I mean, we've installed them in really big tanks where we had to wire in a different pump because the little osmolator pump that came with them was way too tiny. Oh, wow. um, I'm actually using one right now in a build in Texas that has like a, like a giant pan world external pump still controlled by a tons of osmolator, but it just, you know, turns this thing on. They're, they're triple redundant. They have, uh, you know, two different sensors in there. And then the little computer inside the module actually has a, a, a running time programmed in it too. So mm. God forbid both of these sensors fail, which I've never had happen. Yeah that backup module will only pump water for, for X amount of time. I believe it's like 30 to 90 seconds. You can change it in there. Um, so that's that's definitely our second stage of automation that we really, really like. I, um, I use the uh, the Spectra Pure. I've got two Spectra Pure. <clears throat> I think sure. they're called ultra precise uh, top off devices. And um, yeah, I've never had an issue with those. And I think there's mm -hmm. um, a double redundancy in those. There's a, there's a, um, a float switch or... Um, not a float switch. There, there's a, uh, a tube that will sense the water getting to a certain height. will shut, shut the, the pressure tube. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what it is. Yep. 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 And and Keith, we're actually uh, we're installing almost as many SpectraPure units nowadays. I would say um, we in if there's a separate smaller freshwater reservoir like near the tank or under the tank stand, we'll use Tunzi Osmolator. If we don't have the ability to install one of those. We'll use a Spectra Pure. It's called a multi-tank top-off kit. Hmm. We can basically tie that 
into your saltwater mixing bin, and we can also tie it into your aquarium sump. So there's additional stages of redundancy in there, and then we can, it, it allows us to use one unit to, to top off two things. Um, it gets significantly more convoluted thereafter, depending on how we're plumbing it, but they're a great unit. Do you, um, do you think that um, manual float switches are too risky, and do you guys just believe in optical float switches in terms of um, you know the, uh, the backup redundancy for, uh, for top off? I think if, so like the Osmolator uses a, a float switch, a, a, a physical float. Right, manual. It's, yeah. Sorry, it's, it's, it's an optical float switch is initially, then the manual float switch is second. Um, I think it depends what's controlling them. So we'll use those those manual or physical float switches in, in diff, for different applications as well. They just, you know, you want it to be redundant. No matter what you're doing, it's got to be redundant. The one thing I, well, two things I would recommend never to do, please, please, please do not ever connect your RODI unit to a float in the sump. Ooh, yeah. So that, that float, you know, as your water evaporates, the float drops, and then this RODI kicks yeah. on and then up and supposed to turn it off. Those floats in saltwater in particular, in freshwater too, heck, but in saltwater in particular, they get sticky. Um, uh, Mark Callahan, Mr. Saltwater Tank has a really horrible story about one of his clients sending about 20,000 gallons into their basement after a, a, a system like that failed. Um, so just don't, don't tie your RODI directly to a float in the sump mm. without additional things in, in line there. The second thing on auto top off is don't, don't get a cheap one. Um, it, 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 it's, it's going to fail. Um, you know, they're, the good ones might fail too, but there's redundancy involved in that. Some of the really entry level versions, you're better off filling it up manually with a pitcher once a day until you can afford, you know, $50, more for the, for the tons or something along those same lines. Um, Bob and Joe's ATO that just got released in some small, just be really careful with them because it, it can flood your home and destroy your system. Yeah, that would suck. Um, so yeah. I, perhaps you're going to get to this, but um, water changes. Are you a um, automatic water changes scare the crap out of me? Is that something that, um, you know, some of your clients have set up, you know, the, uh, the auto water changes? Do you guys believe in them? What, um, what's the deal in terms of water changes in terms of your maintenance, um, you know, plans with folks? Super client specific again, um, cause we might be building something for Georgia aquarium, Monterey Bay aquarium, or we might be building something for, you know, Austin down the street. Um, so generally speaking, we do, <clears throat> we call it kind of a seamless water change system. So it's, it's not completely automated. We can completely automate it. I, I don't, we, we don't like to, uh, is the bottom line. We always like someone to be on site yeah. to at least inspect what's going on. Float switches, float valves, all of this stuff, optical sensors, they're fantastic. But remember what I said at the beginning, they will fail. Not if, just when. So if we're installing like high quality of all of this stuff, we're going to give us a, a, a longer period of time to catch something that's going wrong, but something's still going to go wrong. So generally what we're doing is we're, we're plumbing directly from our water mix tank to the sump, and we have a couple different ways we can plumb it so that, generally speaking, a client turns on the pump and their saltwater mix, they turn a valve, that valve starts moving water to their system, and then water is automatically displaced via gravity from that system as this fresh water goes in. 
the way we dump it in front of, in line of pumps, on one side of an overflow, there's a lot of different variables that come into play. There's very little mixing that happens. So we're actually doing a water change by turning one valve with no buckets, no hoses, no nothing. This does take planning up front. You have to have your sump plumbed to a drain. Um, and you have to have your salt water mix uh, plumbed to the life support system or the tank as well. So it's it's fairly automated, but somebody just be really careful with fully. Automated. So somebody's got to be, you know, pushing the uh, the uh, you know turning the um, the valves and whatnot and, and and what have you to do the uh, the water change. So it's not auto automatic automatic, but it's easier to do in terms of a manual uh, water change. Yeah, I mean. Um, let me let me just make one comment here before I um, say something more about my water changes. Uh, uh, Great Bitter Reef is um, just wanted to reiterate what he is saying to hit that like button, folks, so more people can find the, uh, the live stream. So go ahead and smash that like button out there so we uh, we get more people that can find the uh, the stream. So Austin, what I was going to say in terms of um, you know how I do water changes, and I might have mentioned this the last time we we uh, spoke, I can't recall, but um, I've got kind of like an automated system set up where I spent a lot of time hard plumbing my sump, you know, to um, my slop sink essentially, and and I've got a whole bunch of different valves. So what I do for a water change is I'll I'll shut down the whole you know uh, system. I'll I'll turn everything off in terms of equipment. And then uh, I'll utilize one of my return pumps. So I have a, um, a valve that I turn. So instead of, you know, when I turn the return pump on, instead of that pump pumping water to the tank, it's going to pump to a, a, a pipe that's going to eventually get to my slop sink. So I can um, easily pump out like 25 gallons of water within a matter of minutes to my slop sink by just turning a valve in my sump. And then um, I've got pumps in two 50-gallon uh, drums. So I got a um, uh, an RODI drum that um, you know has a uh, a pump in it. And when that gets filled up, I pump that water, the RODI, into my other mixing drum with the salt, and I mix up the uh, the salt batch. And then I have another pump in that, which will um, pump water from that drum through PVC into the sump. So I I spent a lot of time setting it up that way in terms of hard plumbing it. But I can literally do a, a 25 gallon, 30 gallon water change in five minutes. So it's just. Uh, and that's the. What percentage is that for your system, Keith, roughly? I'm doing like 10% water changes, you know, every week in each, each of my two systems. So, nice. yeah. Nice. Yeah. What, what, what do you guys recommend in terms of water changes? What percent? How often? Depends on the client. And the system um, for somebody like you, an experienced aquarist that understands bio load feeding, etc., and you're around your tank regularly, 10% weekly is pretty darn good. Um, and obviously, you're basing that, Keith, on your water parameters, on your requirements to add your coral building elements like calcium, alkalinity, magnesium. I'm sure you have that all balanced out. For newer aquarists or for maintenance companies like us, we're doing 20 to 25% weekly. Oh, wow, that's a the lot. Main, yeah, the main reason behind that is if we're there on Tuesday, we're not back there until Tuesday. Mm. We don't know what's gonna happen in between those days. We don't know if client A's kid is gonna go and dump a bunch of food in there. We don't know what's gonna happen. So everything in this hobby to be successful long-term is all about prophylactic maintenance. If we get home and corals are dying or fish is going crazy for some reason, outside of natural disasters or something, generally speaking, we've 
slacked on something. We've slacked on maintenance. We're ignoring bulb changes. We're letting the filter socks fill up with mud and it's overflowing into the something like something else has gone wrong. So as opposed to saying, let's start with 10% and then up it as required, we're starting higher and we can slowly back off of it as needed. And it's much easier, especially when we're dealing with a client in person that doesn't know fish tanks. They're like, why the hell is my tank green? Oh, well, we started with 10%. We realized we need to go up to 15%. So we go overboard right off the bat. And we've just seen immaculate results with this over the years. The water parameters, the one thing we didn't touch talk about in automation was automated testing. We'll yeah. touch back on that. But we can yeah. see these water parameters nowadays with automated testing so much more consistently than ever before. You know, we used to have data points once a week, which is great, better than once a month. Now we have them four times a day. So we can really see what's going on. And what we've noticed when we're sticking with that 20, 25% weekly water change is the, the water's perfect. Um, could we, you know, dip down from that? Yeah, of course we could. But then where is that breaking point? How do we keep it consistent? How does Austin talk to people in Saudi Arabia, Australia, England, and California about the same thing? If people are coming to me, I'm going to give you a recipe that will work if you follow it, as opposed to try this, it might work. No, what we do absolutely will work, but some of it is going to sound overboard. Um, and, and that's because if if we go too little with it, we're going to wind up with an issue. So that's probably more of like a business perspective than a hobbyist perspective. I think if you're newer in the industry, it's a good rule of thumb to follow and then slowly back off because you can't go wrong with that. And do the math on the little bit more RODI water you're using, the little bit more salt you're using. Do the math over, I mean, months, year even, and you'll see a difference for sure. But then do the math if you crash your tank. Um, you know, do half under coral. A couple, um, <laughs> it's a couple no of questions for you. Um, a, what salt do you guys like to use? <laughs> Am I to answer that now? Um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I can honestly say through a tremendous amount of behind the scenes connections, talks, ICP tests, you name it, that a good high quality salt, you can be successful with any of them. You really can. You want to make sure that whatever high quality salt you're buying and using mixes up consistently. Yeah. That means from the top of the bucket when you're taking scoops out to the bottom of the bucket. Is your alkalinity magnesium, calcium, is all of that pretty darn close or is it whacked out? Is it totally skewed? Then is it consistent from bucket to bucket or bag to bag or box to box, whatever. That's the number one thing that we at Tenji look for in a salt is to make sure that it's consistent. I see a lot of people online, unfortunately, getting on bandwagons saying this is that salt. And some people get pretty freaking mean yeah. about it. Um, I can tell you that there's a lot less salt manufacturers than you think there are. <laughs> Most salts are rebranded. So there's not as many, you know, if you think there's 20 options, there's not. There's 20 labels, but there's not 20 options. Um, we are currently using Red Sea Blue Bucket salt. Um, we are really big fans of this salt. Out here, it's easy for us to get, generally speaking. Uh, it mixes up really clean. We love the consistent parameters. We use it in reef tanks, fish-only tanks. We use it in school labs doing various test results. Um, we have used different salts over the years and have had tremendous results with that too. I was a huge proponent and still am of ESV salt, which is made in New York. Yeah. It's harder for us to get out here. Um, and then throughout coronavirus, every logistical chain got messed up. Um, so we're, we still use their two part. We use other products from ESV. We love it. Um, 
But honestly, I truly believe that you can be successful with any salt if it mixes consistently. Yeah, that's that's certainly a key point in terms of the uh, consistency. You know, I, I, I've been using Instant Ocean now for a while. I used to use uh, ESV and uh, love that salt. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, my only complaint with the, uh, the Instant Ocean is that I do have to, um, you know, supplement with magnesium. With that, um, every sure. pretty much every batch will kind of test out about 1290 when I mix it up. Uh, with the Red Sea, mm -hmm. do you guys have to do any uh, supplementation, magnesium, potassium, or anything, or is it pretty much uh, right out of the bucket? It's good to go. It's pretty good right out of the bucket. Um, there are two different kinds. Of, we, so we use blue. I believe the other one's black bucket, if okay. memory serves. Also, if memory serves, I believe the difference, Keith, is basically like Instant Ocean to Reef Crystals. Yeah. So like one of them is a little higher, higher buffered. Um, generally speaking, we're targeting kind of the lower alkalinity range for most of our reef tanks. So, you know, seven and a half to nine and a half DKH is kind of where most of our tanks land. Um, if I have to throw a dart at it, like a number, we're going to shoot for eight DKH for our alkalinity. Um, and we, we find that the Red Sea Blue Bucket mixes up really consistently in that range. So... Um this is a question that I was going to uh, ask you, but J.A.H.'s Reef, any issue with coral systems having super low nutrients when you do those large 20 to 25% water changes? Because that, that was kind of like the thought that initially uh, I was thinking about. Man, that is a big water change. You know, so I, what I was um, going to ask you is what do you guys like in terms of key parameters? And then, yeah, after such a large water change, you know, how does that impact those uh, parameters? Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> Water changes in general are to, let me rephrase this, the parameters that I'm targeting in any, any aquarium, but particularly in a reef system, I'm going to target the exact same parameters that my salt mixes up to. So if my salt mixes up to 8 DKH, 420 calcium, 1200 magnesium part per million, that's what I want my reef to run at. So that when I do a 25% water change or ah, my fish got caught in a pump and I got to do an 80% water change. So when I do those bigger water change, the fish act like nothing's right. happened. Um, I have a few photos of my old reef like down to like three inches of water. My banded angelfish are laying on their side. Um, it was like a 90 gallon reef. I would drain it down that much and do a water change. And minutes later, everything was happy as hell and uh, corals never looked better. So that's basically uh, the reason that we target the parameters that our salt mixes up to. Um, hopefully none of us ever have an emergency situation. But if we do, and our reef parameters are up here, and the salt we're using is down here, when you do that emergency water change, what's going to happen? I don't know. Um, so generally speaking, we're targeting whatever our salt mixes up to. In regards to nutrients, that's an excellent question. It's particularly troublesome in new reefs nowadays. Yeah. The equipment we have nowadays is so freaking good. Uh, Keith, you and I discussed this a little bit before we got live online with everyone. It's like, man, with today's today's uh, equipment, knowledge that's out there, someone who's never had an aquarium before can have a thriving reef tank in less than a year. It's freaking amazing. But we also have uh, seen more than one person completely strip the water of nutrients where that was unheard of unless you were doing monster water changes every two days. So... Generally speaking, we're, we're feeding a lot. We feed our tanks a tremendous amount of food. I'm a huge proponent of feeding your fish. You know, mm -hmm. I want to see a tang swim past me 
and turn. And when it turns, I want to see it plump at the bottom. You know, if it's looking like just kind of the shape of a fish, I'm not doing my job. I want to see a bump at the bottom of it. And that's for juvenile fish, big fish, you name it. Not obese fish, but nice plump fish. Um, that's going to be your insurance policy. Should anything ever happen in your tank and your fish have appetite suppression for a week or two, they're going to be fine. Uh, if your fish are skinny, you have appetite suppression, they might not yeah. make it. So fish waste is the best coral food on the planet. Do you guys, so you guys don't feed any aminos or any other coral food to your, um, clients tanks, or does that depend again on the uh, tank? Depends on the tank. To clients' tanks, no. Generally, we're not playing with aminos, coral foods, anything like that. We play with them a little bit in the office. And I don't know how many of my coworkers are online right now, but um, we play with them in varying degrees. We play with them somewhat consistently. I know my one coworker, Sam, has been doing a really good job um, with Acropower lately, Julian Sprung's Acropower. Um, pretty fantastic amino slash carbon source. Um, I think a lot of those products, ESV has a really good one too called Transition Elements. Yep, I've used that. Um, a, lot of those, a lot of those products are great, um, you know, and, and there will be differing opinions on it. Uh, what I can say is that in a, in a chock full reef system with lots of fish, if you're feeding the heck out of them a quality food, you don't have to supplement your corals with anything Yeah, else. I mean, that's what I pretty much do. I, um, I do not use aminos. I do not use coral food for, for the most part. I mean, I, I also have my own like homemade... Uh, fish food and I'll put a little, um, you know, coral food, a uh, little reef roids in that and, um, some spirulino, uh, you know, a spirulina powder and a whole bunch of other stuff mm -hmm. into that homemade fish food. But I also feed my fish like four times a day, you know, and I'll feed them variety. So I'll, I'll feed the, uh, the, 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 you know, the whole homemade food once. And then I'll do like just brine shrimp and mysa shrimp pellets. And I feed a lot of nori too, you know, and, and, um, so I think the variety is good, but yeah, I, um, I've, you know, I've, I've got great, uh, colors and growth with my corals and I just, um, I think fish poop really is, um, is a great thing in terms of the, uh, coral nutrition. Yeah. The, the final note I'd have on that, I have a lot of friends that are really, I guess you could say like high end coral collectors. Um, it's almost a different hobby to me nowadays, the longer I've done this, Keith, than someone who wants a thriving reef tank, a, a coral collector. It's, it's a different hobby. And I don't mean that in a, in a mean way or a degrading way. I just mean that when we're looking at a half-inch stick that may or may not have four colors on it, or even a whole colony, who knows? If you haven't had, had it that long, you've grown out to this big, gorgeous colony— there is a way to tease out maybe the last two to five percent of coral coloration. That's where those like Zeovit type programs came into play. We're stripping the nutrients so much, we're thinning out the coral tissue, we're getting them to color up in various degrees. That's where some of these amino acids and additional coral foods can come into play. And you know, I'm I'm never gonna say don't do that, guys, unless you're a new aquarist. If you're a new aquarist, I'm going to say don't bother yourself with that because you need to get the basics down. Let's get the basics down. Let's get these corals thriving. Let's get this twig to turn into a coral colony and then maybe start tweaking with things. More often than not, Keith, I'm helping a lot of aquarists out of a corner they've painted themselves mm. into because they're on forums, they're, you know, so-and-so is using this reefroid and so-and-so is using this amino acid and then so-and-so, and they're just throwing so much yeah. stuff in there on top of their yeah. fish. And it's just like, before we know it, we're in a brand new system with no bacterial load to speak of. We're throwing all kinds of food in there. Now we have an algae bloom we can't get rid of. 
So now we're throwing more equipment at it when really it should be backing it up. Sounds like taking that. Method. Sounds like a recipe for dinos. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, yeah, yeah. We've had some interesting, uh, fantastic local aquarists, but have had some major issues with with dinos because of like, oh, I'm gonna throw you know this smorgasbord of food in there, and it's like, okay. Yeah. Um, we we really like UVs on reef systems for that reason, actually. Yeah, to, I, to, um, I I had no. a uh, an outbreak of dinos on on my peninsula tank, and, and the UV knocked them out. And uh, you know, since that point, I put a UV also on my other um, 187 gallon tank. So now in both systems, I have UV, and I'm running just you know for a couple of reasons. One, to um, as a preventative measure for uh, dinos. Mm -hmm. I guess you never know. But, um, you know, too, I mm -hmm. guess, uh, you know, and this is, you know, an area of expertise for you in terms of uh, fish disease. I, um, I believe it helps a little bit in, in terms of that. I, I, you would be the one to um, be able to answer that better than I would. But uh, it seems like that would help. And I guess also it's a water clarity thing. It's, it seems like UV would, would yeah. help uh, with water clarity. 100%. Yeah. I won't go in the weeds too much about UV because I could probably talk about it for six hours. But you hit the nails on the head. So, you know, it's, 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 it's an insurance policy. It's going to protect you from dinos. It's going to arguably protect your fish. I was just talking with a coworker about this today. There's basically three stages of UV sterilization and we're going to call it UV sterilization, not UV clarification. UV clarification is a term more often used in ponds, sometimes bigger public aquarium exhibits. Suffice to say UV can do three things. It can eliminate waterborne algae. So that's the easiest thing for us to eliminate. Then it can start to affect bacteria. And that could be bacteria of fish. That could be bacteria of corals. I'll get to that in a second. A um, little bit harder to do, but still pretty straightforward for UV. And number three, it can help control parasites. For the most part, it doesn't kill a parasite when it goes through it. What it does is it sterilizes the parasite. It literally destroys the ability for that parasite to reproduce. So that parasite might make its way through the UV. It might even latch onto a fish, but we've damaged it so badly that it can't reproduce, mm. so their numbers can't increase. I'll go back to the coral thing and say that UV, in theory, can do the exact same thing for fish as it can for corals. I've been involved in two instances, uh, actually both here on the West Coast, one prior to me living here, that a facility was having, a wholesale importer facility was having a really hard time with a specific family of corals from a specific region. They tried everything. We went back and forth with them for many weeks and eventually decided let's throw a UV on there because it could help with whatever the, it seemed to be a bacterial issue. Within about three days, all of their corals stopped receding. These were LPS corals. They stopped receding. And within about two weeks, they actually started to grow tissue over that barren skeleton. I'm a huge proponent of UV for more than one reason. And I think there's a tremendous amount of research if someone has the time, money, and effort available to see what it can do to help corals. Because what I can tell you is 100,000% out of 100%, it does help corals. I just can't quantify that. And it is completely anecdotal. But that anecdote is over a pretty big sample size in various countries and so forth. And, and, and it does help. Um, I will back that up by saying the the... The bad things about UV we hear about from time to time is it kills your copepods, it destroys your plankton, et cetera, et cetera. If you have a copepod go through your supply pump and get shot out into the tank, it's not in good shape. <laughs> it's going to be barely yeah. wriggling around by the time it gets up there, and it's instantly fish food. So, yeah, you could argue that it's going to take away a few things from the system, but the things that it can potentially help and protect and add to the system, 
completely dwarfs that, in my opinion. So there is a possibility that it could zap some beneficial bacteria for corals, um, but also any pathogens. It, it could um, potentially take care of pathogens that could, could impact coral um, health. The, the research I've seen on, on actual beneficial bacteria, so nitrobacter and nitrosomonas that we're intentionally trying to grow in our live rock and our biofilters and whatnot, it doesn't exist in the water column. If it is in the water column when people far smarter than me are sampling this and putting it under scopes, it's actually dead. So all of that good bacteria is living on a surface. It lives on the silicone in the aquarium scene. It lives on the glass until you wipe it away. It lives in the rock, the sand bed, the pipes, you name it. So one of the things that I hear a lot, I'm sure a lot of us hear a lot, is that, hey, I'm going to start this new tank. I'm going to take some water from XYZ's tank and throw it in here. Probably not a great idea, and we're really not getting any beneficial bacteria off of that. If you want to use someone else's system or one of your other systems to help seed it, seed, use rock and sand. Uh, that's where all the bacteria is going on. Um, there, there's, there's a couple things that it might take away from a system, but it's, it's mostly old wives' tales. So this is um, a question I wanted to get. Um, Blue Reef had asked this question a while ago, and I want to get to it because I think it's got some relevancy to what we're talking about here with bacteria. And, and the question is, um, does Austin believe a skimmer should be run 24-7 as well as carbon 24-7? And, and I, I think that's relevant because, you know, I think if you're turning off that skimmer, then you're not skimming out, um, you know, you're not skimming all the time. And, and what, are the, um, what are the disadvantages of that? I guess pH is going to drop. Right, so that's one disadvantage. But what 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 are your thoughts in terms of running a um, skimmer part time as well as um, activated carbon? Really great question. Really hard to answer. <laughs> um, so we'll start with skimmers, uh, and I will say this about uh, supply pumps in general too. I I don't like when pumps turn off and then turn back on when I'm not around yeah. or when our aren't around. Um, even the best abyss pump in the world or whatever pump you're using, everything can and will hiccup. So whenever we can eliminate a variable that is going, whenever we can eliminate a variable, we should. Everything in this hobby, everything in this industry is trying to work against us. We're trying to keep an ocean in a glass box. It's basically a controlled crash. It really is. Like we are, if this stops working, it starts doing this very fast, right? So Whenever I can eliminate a variable, and I'm talking, my coworkers laugh at me like this, but I will eliminate an extra bulkhead in a tank because if it's not 100% necessary, because that bulkhead might leak someday, but that's a variable. If I can eliminate, I'm yeah. going to. Now there's a chance of it can leak. So when it comes to skimmers turning on and off, generally we're not doing that. Generally, if I'm feeling like the tank is being skimmed too much, I'm going to make that skimmer less efficient. And that's oftentimes just going to be running it drier. Um, I have intentionally undersized skimmers a couple of times. Skimmers nowadays are so freaking good. Um, at one point, and Keith, you probably remember this, we were in an, you know, if you had a 200-gallon tank, you bought a skimmer for a 400-gallon tank. And that it was, was just 50 inches tall. Yeah, exactly. It was 50 <laughs> inches tall. You had to build a special closet for it. Our spouses hated us because they stunk. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they were super But aggressive. they worked really now, well. <laughs> they did work well. Uh, now, if you buy a skimmer for a 100-gallon tank, it's, it's going to work really well for a 100-gallon yeah. tank. So you can yeah. intentionally kind of trick it to, to, to not skim as well if you're facing that problem. So here's where the whole concept comes from. The whole concept for turning your skimmer off 
is to leave more plankton or food in the water column for your food to or for your corals to eat to consume. I don't remember who was initially pioneering this thought because it was like nobody had skimmers. Then skimmers came into play. Kind of everyone started skimming. Then some coral farms, if memory serves, are the first people I saw turning it on and off. I can say from experience that my friends Todd and Brad at Cherry Corals, my friend Joe Caparata at Unique Corals, they all play with this skimmer on and off. One of the things that they have going for them is they're there every day. Yeah. Somebody's there yeah. every day yeah. making sure that skimmer turned back on. Boom, check that off the variable list. Number two, most of their raceways, most of their systems have 2,000 corals in them, crags, colonies, you name it, and maybe like six fish, maybe six Not fish, a heavy like bio maybe load. four fish. Yeah. Extremely yeah. low bio load for the amount of corals that's in that tank. Um, so what they're doing is giving the corals a chance to utilize these nutrients before they're stripped out of the water from the skimmer, but they're also using the skimmer to do the skimmer's job. So if you find yourself in that type of position, if you're growing corals in a raceway at home, or if you have a really new system with very little fish, you can probably go without a skimmer in general and not have to worry about toggling it on and off. I'm never going to tell someone to not toggle their skimmer on and off, but I just want everyone to be aware of that variable that it might not turn back on. And and if you're not paying attention to it, who knows how long it goes on for before you catch yeah, it. Yeah, the only time I turn my skimmers off is when I'm dosing bacteria. And that's like that's another thing I want to talk to you about. But um, when I'm dosing bacteria, <clears throat> you know, the skimmer and the UV will go off for a few hours. So I'm dosing Microbacter 7 and Microbacter Clean. I just started doing that this past summer. I've talked a lot about this on the show. We've had some guests talked a lot about, you know, bacteria dosing. And, um, you know, so I think the theory is that, um, you know, when you first put that, do you know, that bacteria in the water column, it could get skimmed off or UV could, could zap the, uh, the bacteria. But, um, you know, and that kind of also dovetails into what we we're talking about before in terms of the equipment. It's just so, so efficient these days and that you're just pulling a lot more out of the water, zeroing out nutrients uh, today like, you know, like you weren't uh, in, in years past. So it's 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 more powerful in terms of the filtration equipment that we have. And, um, you know, so we've, we've, there's been some conversations on the show that, um, you know, why, why are we dosing bacteria these days versus years ago we didn't do that? Why is that necessary? Is it because the skimmers are perhaps pulling out you know, all the mechanical filtration? It's, it's so much better these days that it's pulling out that stuff and that we need to um, you know, dose bacteria to supplement what's being taken out? I mean, what, what, do you, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And, and do you guys dose bacteria in some, some systems? It's, um, it's another, unfortunately, kind of depends on the situation type reply. Our overall uh, scope on it is once a system's established, we're very rarely dosing bacteria again. I'm not going to say it's a bad idea to because it's not. Uh, one of the important things in any aquarium system, pond system, you name it, is that we are forcing fresh, young, beneficial bacteria to reproduce and to push some of that older bacteria out. We also want multiple species and strains of bacteria working together in this closed ecosystem that we've developed. So that's where adding like your Microbacter 7 or any of these over-the-counter bacterias can come, uh, can become very valuable. I do think that a lot of that type of bacterial dosing kind of comes into that what we we're talking about with amino acids, like that last little bit we're trying to squeeze out of systems. Um, can it help? Yes. Or does it help? Yes. Is it necessary? Maybe not. We do use bacteria in every new system yep. that we start. 
And we oftentimes use it for about a year after we start. So if we're stocking a tank within two to three months, we're still dosing bacteria. There are various degrees that we're dosing it and various reasons we're dosing it. Like, for example, we're working on this new system right now, about an hour from the showroom. It's a big fish-only tank. I want to say it's about six, five, 6,000-gallon 6, system. There's no live rock in it. It's got mm. a big fake insert in it, and it has a bead filter. The bead filter is the main biological filter. And so without dosing bacteria, it would take two years for that system to, to establish. When we're dosing a bottled beneficial bacteria, it happens much faster. Um, so, so I think if you're using a, a quality uh, beneficial bacteria, which I will say that there is some snake oil still floating around out there. Uh, my, ni Nitrobacter is great. Um, we use a lot of the Fritz Turbo Start. Um, I think any of the bigger brands, as long as you do your due diligence, is, is a good bet. Um, stay away from anything that says it can be used in fresh water or salt oh, water. Yeah. Uh, that that's just adding ammonia to your tank, and uh, and it, 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 it'll it'll bump up your bacterial load, but not without bumping up ammonia mm. first. Um, so I, I think there's some really great things that can come in that. And actually, the owner of ESV, I won't spill his beans too much, but he was playing with bacterial control in a different way. He was actually um, trying to trying to create more aggressive strains by killing certain bacterias. And it's a really interesting method that he's using that involves dosing bleach. Ah, uh, yeah. You're um, talking about Bob, uh, Bob's uh, radical bleach dosing. Bob's bleach. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, and I'll tell you what, it's working. It's, I can't go into details cause I don't know them. I'm not hiding anything. <laughs> um, but it is basically doing a similar process per my understanding to we're dosing bacteria we want to try and outcompete bacteria we might not want where he's dosing a bleach to remove bacteria we don't want and allow more room for the, for the uh, other bacteria to proliferate. Um, I don't know the science behind it. He's the chemist. He's the genius on this, but it's all kind of the same end goal. We, we want to, to get our bacteria uh, as efficient as possible, but I don't want anyone to think that it's a necessity. I don't want, especially for an established tank, you know, we, we might be spending a lot of money and, and, and chasing something um, that you're not going to see a ton of yield for. I'm yet to see a tank that someone didn't dose bacteria in for five, 10 years, and all of a sudden they had a problem because they didn't dose bacteria. I've never seen or heard of that. I have seen and heard of older tanks seeming to get a little tired. They dose some bacteria and they perk up um, because we are getting this new bacterial strain in there. So Keith, I think if I still had a reef tank at home, I'd probably be doing something pretty similar to you, which is the occasional random introduction of a new strain uh, or of a younger strain, I should say. Um, but that is for the Aquarius that we're talking to. You're, if you're watching this, you're probably the pinnacle of the iceberg in the reef aquarium hobby anyways. And that's the kind of people that might want to start playing with that. Um, just be sure that you don't get sucked into this is the only way yeah. or this is the product because it's not. You know, the other benefit I like with the uh, the dosing the bacteria, and I, I dose each um, um, strain uh, once a week, is that um, it does help with me at least fight nutrients a little bit. So I, I took my Kato offline, which, um, you know, speaking of maintenance, is, um, you know, with a Kato reactor or refugium, it, it's just one less thing I have to worry about, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, let's get back to the activated carbon question. Oh, you, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Yeah, what do you th what do you think about that twenty four seven? So carbon is a it's a great tool. It's not required. Um, some of our tanks never see carbon. Most of our tanks see it 
changed monthly, I would say. It's important to note that carbon <clears throat> very rarely, and there's so many different grades of it now, you know, like your bulk reef supply rocks, like kind of the super high end stuff, some of those other brands yeah. like that. Then you have like the cheapest of cheap carbon that comes with an aqua clear hang on the back filter. Throw that stuff out. Uh, literally like your really entry level carbons, they're mm, in a reef tank, they're going to do more harm than good. And that's based on the, their ability to absorb nutrients and, and, and then how much dust they're going to give off too. So a really low quality carbon is, is not, is not worthwhile. An intermediate carbon is a good place to start. Um, I'm, ha I'm fine to say that we use a Kohler lab product. We've also used a bulk reef supply product, um, kind of the basic carbons that they use. Generally speaking, carbon's not going to do a whole heck of a lot after about a week. I don't remember the exact data on it. I've seen substantially lower than that, too. Mm. I saw one study that said uh, carbon's actually only useful for 48 to 72 hours. Wow. After that, it becomes more of a beneficial bacteria housing space, like, like a live rock. I think that study was really more focused on that super entry-level carbon. Because I've seen carbons and in tanks we're having yellowing issues or tannins. These are freshwater tanks. I've seen the carbon, you know, start to degrade after maybe like two weeks and then the yellow starts to return. So generally speaking, in a reef tank, if you feel the need to use carbon, which would be to remove yellows from the yeah. water, to uh, reduce any smell that might be happening. And some some folks might say that it will help bind um certain things that corals are giving off. If you have a super mixed reef, palethoa, zoanthids, uh, acropora, montipora, you name it, um, it's probably a good idea to run a small amount of carbon, change it out once a month because it is going to collect some of this residual stuff through coral aleopathy. Um, all these things corals are throwing off nonstop. We don't know in the industry what it is entirely. That's not been studied really yet. Carbon will remove some of that and it'll help kind of control some of that coral warfare. So generally speaking, we're replacing it once a month in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a reef system. Reactor versus passively <clears throat> kind of depends on, on the system. More often than not, nowadays, we're actually running it passively in reef tanks. So we'll put it in a bag in a high flow area. Sometimes we're throwing it right in a filter sock. If you're cleaning your filter socks regularly, it's a great place for it. Um, reactors are fantastic too. And it will allow the carbon to do its job much better. Right much, much better. So in a fish only tank and a freshwater tank and a pond, we've had to use it a couple times. Um, we are using a reactor because we're not worried about stripping too much from the water column. We want to strip everything out of there. We're in a reef tank. We've stripped it so much that corals start to get pissed off. So most of the time in a reef tank, we're utilizing a reactor either on super slow flow for carbon. Yeah, me too. Or we're using it for, for GFO. Um, if we're using GFO on a system, that'd be where a reactor comes into play. More often than not, we're running it passively. So that's going to save people money running it passively because you don't need a reactor. You don't need a pump. It's less maintenance. You put it in a little bag. You just want to be sure, just like your filter sock, that you're staying on top of it. Um, but I think it's a very valuable tool. Yeah, I, uh, for years and years, have been running uh, carbon 24-7 in a reactor. And every three weeks, I change it out. And I've been using uh, ESV. So it's 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 worked out pretty well, and yeah, the water will um, it definitely takes some uh, yellowish uh, tint out of the water because I've I've not run it for for certain times, and uh, yeah, it um, it definitely helps kind of uh, polish the water like that. Yeah, yeah, and if any aquarist that's watching is is curious about this yellow water thing, it's it's pretty simple test. A lot of times you don't notice it unless it gets really bad. Take a clear cup, 
dip it in your aquarium, hold it up against well, it's a black wall, but hold it up against a white wall or a white sheet of paper with a bright light, and you might notice a pretty surprising yeah. tinge. You might nothing at all. Yeah. Um, and if you notice that tinge, give it a shot. Throw a you know an affordable bag of decent carbon in there, and 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 then do that test again, and try to observe what do your corals do in in a couple days, in four days, in a week. Uh, you might notice some corals opening up much more. You might notice some corals not opening up as much. And then based on the corals you're keeping and the way your system reacts to the addition of carbon, you can kind of judge how you want to use it in the future. So this is a, a good question, and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce the username uh, right. Norb Poggio, what are your thoughts on ozone? Mm. Ozone's a phenomenal tool when it's used appropriately. If your tank is under 2,000 gallons, you'll never hear me talk about ozone. Ozone is can be extremely dangerous. So as a business that is installing these in workplaces and homes that has to uh, be extremely mindful of liability, et cetera. Yeah, see, you already um, talked me out of it right there, uh, Austin. I would never. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we don't use it unless it's a really big system. So basically when you get into a system that's uh, six, seven, eight feet deep front to back, so when you're looking through it, so width-wise, so if it's 20 feet long, you know, six, seven feet front to back and four feet high or 10 feet high, whatever, the front to back depth, that clarity that we seek looking through that super deep dimension there, that's where ozone comes into play. Mm -hmm. If we're in a tank that's deeper than, say, four feet front to back, um, you know, in a public aquarium science center or somebody's home wants to call us for sure, um, we do have ways to implement ozone because at that point, UV and carbon, you're going to be going through so much carbon, you're going to need such a huge UV to do the same thing that a kind of modest size ozone generator could do. Um, that's really when we start to, to, to take care of it. Um, I have two personal friends that have been knocked out cold from ozone systems that were not operating appropriately. Um, no names will be named, no facilities, <laughs> no nothing. Any good ozone system is going to have a backup alarm on it. It's basically an ozone sniffer. It literally just senses ozone in the air, in the life support room, in the stand, in the filtration area. And it sends off this godforsaken loud alarm with lights and <laughs> ringing and everything to let you know, do not come in here until you air us out. Um, because it it's, it's dangerous. There's no doubt about it. And if you don't tune it right for your system. It's dangerous for your animals too. So talk about, you know, removing variables. Um, let's take ozone out of the equation unless you're in a really big, really big tank. And then when you are in that really big tank, we need good safeguards set up uh, to deal with it. So it very quickly becomes a super expensive system. You know, I think most of our, I won't even throw a, a, a price out there, but it's in the many thousands wow. of dollars for an ozone system that you would see us install. Wow. Yeah. Big bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for most of us guys, like, you know, even a 2000 gallon tank UV and carbon, you're going to be absolutely golden. Um, if you see a used cheap ozone thing for sale, just let it, let it go. So let's, uh, let's take a big step back here, Austin. And, um, I guess we've been talking a lot of, a lot of specifics, but, um, before the live stream, you mentioned something to me that was very interesting. You said that, um, you guys at Tenji have this, uh, recipe for maintenance for reef tanks. Can you, um, can you mm -hmm. kind of talk about that recipe for maintenance that you guys, um, and, and maybe, maybe focus it more on, on the, uh, the smaller tank side versus the larger commercial accounts? Totally. Um, 
it I actually referenced an old Magna talk of mine and uh, prior to this, Keith, just to make sure I, we were still on the same page as back then. And it's been five years since I did that wow. talk. I can't believe it. I look at the date. Um, it's called Bulletproof Reef Keeping. If anybody wants to search it on YouTube, just search Bulletproof Reef Keeping and then like my last name, it'll pop up. Good luck spelling my last name. <laughs> but essentially what it did, it was kind of like the bulk reef supply 68 reefs of weeking reefing or whatever series they did weeks, they did yeah. a great yeah they did a really good job uh, of that um it was pretty in depth too and um so this kind of was a precursor to that my magna talk and and i tried to do that before i knew they were going to do that but with this kind of specific honed in mindset um with this recipe if you will so without getting into too much detail if you want more than what i'm going to give now guys that's a good place to see it I was also younger and spoke a little differently <laughs> then, so forgive me, but it's all good information. Um, so generally speaking, we're going to rely on a protein skimmer as the heart of our filtration, coupled with sizable, consistent water changes. Um, we try and keep everything as simple as possible so that, you know, well, I can just skip to this right now. We do not use refugiums or algae scrubbers or things of that nature. They're all phenomenal manners of nutrient export. They really, really are. Refugiums will pull things out with catamorph, with uh, various types of other macro algaes. Um, a buddy of mine in Florida uh, that I haven't seen for a long time, he's got a really cool little refugium that's actually all like the red dragon macro algae. Mm, yeah. Um, and he screams to high heaven about how phenomenal uh, nutrient uh, sink that that is. It's still something else to maintain. We need a light. We've got this other piece of equipment. We've got unions. We've got pumps. We've got other chances for things to leak. What is my goal here? Is my goal to keep fish happy and thriving and corals happy and thriving? Or is my goal to grow algae in a different place? Because if we're keeping up with our water changes, if we're changing our filter socks, if we're using an efficient skimmer and changing that, you don't need this additional five, six, seven other methods of filtration. We live in this golden age of reef keeping where there are 20 different major filtration yeah. things we can use. So what I did was just kind of hone in on something that I could talk to people around the world about that I would know would work regardless of what equipment they have on hand. And that focuses on using pure RODI water, so zero TDS RODI water, mixed with the quality synthetic sea salt, your skimmer, and then choosing quality equipment from the beginning. That's a bit of a different topic there, but I'm really big on choosing, you know, for, first of all, think about the biggest tank you can afford and then shrink it by 50% because all that other stuff is going to add up so quick when it comes into the tank size and, and equipment that we want to choose. So basically that, that recipe would include, um, we've kind of talked about it, the, the filter socks, the skimmer, um, keep up with your weekly water changes, have backup equipment on hand. Um, that's a big point of that conversation that I hit. And I, I deal with so many clients weekly about this. You know, we, we include backup supply pumps, backup power heads in any quote that, that we send out. I have clients constantly tell me X, Y, Z is this much less. Well, they're not including any backup stuff. We lose projects sometimes because of that. They call me several months or years later and say, oh my gosh, I'm in this pinch. I don't have backups. Redundancy stuff. is just so uh, important. So I always absolutely. run two return pumps and it, that, you know, even like on a 120 gallon system, I have two return pumps going because you just never know. You never know. And if you're not running two return pumps, have one on the shelf. 
you know, um, have something on the shelf so that you can swap it out. Or when your neighbor calls you and you're 2,600 miles away, have it pre-plumbed so that that can get swapped right in. Um, next day air is a beautiful shipping thing that a lot of us have access to. It's not always available. In seems the like, area. seems like all these problems always happen like on a Saturday or something like that. Right. Cause that's when you're fussing or the, the, day the day before the day before you go on yeah, vacation. There you go, right. Yeah. One of those two <laughs> things. Right. So yeah, that, the, the, the recipe, I, I would honestly just say, watch, watch that presentation, but, but it involves, you know, the, the consistent maintenance, making maintenance easy on yourself. So that's a huge thing. Um, so is, the key really is the large water change, right? Because if you're not using an algae reactor or refugium, then you're relying yep. on that large water change to to keep the nutrients in check. Yep. 100%, yeah. Okay. 100%. Gotcha. I will tangent a bit here because there might be a couple of people online who are like, this guy's full of crap. Or, and I'm really good friends with the owner of Triton um, in Australia, Ishan, and then Julian Baggio is yeah, his we right-hand had, man. Yeah, we, we had those guys on. It's such a fantastic freaking method. I, I absolutely am over the moon with it. I love it. I'm having a hell of a time replicating everything across the board in the field. And if I had my own tank, if we had a ton of time, a ton of displays at the Tenji office, you know, we would be looking at that a little bit closer. We use their IPC, IPC, ICP test regularly, especially when we have a question, what the heck's going yeah. on here? It is important to keep in mind that when certain parameters get out of whack enough, their directions do state perform a series of water changes. So it's not perfect. And when things get out of hand one way or the other, the fix is still to perform water changes. So for Austin to be able to replicate this on a grand scale and help a business run and help Aquarius around the world do this consistently, this is the method that we've devised that we've proven over and over and over works really, really well. And I think the Triton method or that type of method can work well too. We're just, we have a hard time replicating it on a grand scale without having someone there regularly, you know? So if we're, think about if you, your reef tanks at home, what if you only saw them once a week? How would you change the maintenance? What would you do differently? And do you have time to add these independent elements manually? Because you can't automate that stuff. You shouldn't automate that stuff. You can't test for it. You know, you, you, there's no probe to, to back up your iodine dosing bottle when it dumps 500 milliliters instead of five. So I think those methods are really great. And I'll just be honest, I don't have a ton of experience with it outside of the few times we've used it. Um, because we have to replicate things on a grand scale and we have to be able to do it where we're only there once a week. So, um, this question's come up a couple of times in the chat. Um, Kalkwasser chasing pH. We've talked a lot about that topic on the live stream. Do you guys, um, utilize Kalkwasser in the tanks? Do you recommend, uh, folks that are using a calcium reactor to, to supplement with caulk? I'll start by saying we're really big two-part folks. Um, we're really big two-part folks because you tend to avoid anything else we're about to talk about if you use two-part. There are exceptions to that when you get into really heavily stocked reef tanks, big reef tanks in particular. The other exception is if you're an old salt like me or maybe Keith, uh, we have more experience with calcium reactors and, and it's, it's a little bit, it's just a little bit different mindset to think of a calcium reactor versus two-part. So with two-part, we are able to I mean, we have, I think the biggest reef we're currently working with on two-part is about 800-gallon system. Uh, that's a lot of two-part. Uh, I mean, that, is that a heavy, heavy reef uh, tank? 
It's a big yeah. reef tank. Yeah. Yeah. So we deliver our two part and five gallon buckets on that hmm. system and um, we automate the dosing. It is backed up by an Apex Trident uh, automated con- automating testing device. And then we back that up with manually test once a week to make sure that that's staying in line. There are more affordable ways to do two part. Um, like we use ESV and we buy a dry formula and then we mix it up. Um, you know, that helps a lot. And, uh, and it really takes some of the guesswork out of the couple of other things we're going to get into now. So moving on to a calcium reactor, phenomenal device. I mean, it's how the ocean works, right? It's taking aragonite, it's dissolving it, which spikes pH, raises pH in the reactor, dumps it into our tank. And obviously part of that, this part of that aragonite dissolving is it's going to increase alkalinity and calcium and all that jazz. So that's going to be dosed into the tank. Oftentimes we're going to have a little bit lower pH because that water's coming out in yep. there. So now we're going to add Calquasar on top. Um, so now we're dealing with two devices to try and do one thing. Um, those generally are going to have multiple pumps, maybe three pumps. Oftentimes if you have a recirculating calcium reactor, something to feed the calcium reactor and then something for the Calquasar stirrer as well. Um, so we're moving away from the simplicity of the system when we're getting into these things. That's strictly from a design point of view, strictly from an Austin has to maintain these tanks remotely for long term. (laughs) Um, And we open up a ton of variables when we're using these other devices. It makes total sense. You guys want, um, you know, hands off, easy, simple, less, um, you know, less uh, pressure points, so to speak. Exactly. It, and, 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 I, and I hear the argument about cost a lot, and then I can pretty quickly push back and say, well, you know, have you ever had an issue when you're playing with Calquaster Calcium Reactor and it wiped a bunch of stuff out? Um, because all the, all the cost discussions go out the window when people have tank issues, big tank issues. Um, and, and it's also a, a bigger upfront cost to get those two devices. Um, they're phenomenal. They work great, right? And, and I know a couple of people who only use Calquaster for their reef. Um, in fact, I know that Joe Yayulo is a huge proponent of Calquaster in his 20,000 gallon reef tank. That's just always jamming. I know he did a recent renovation on that system, but I've seen it in person a few times and it's like unbelievable. I mean, Staghorn Coral is bigger than me, right? And uh, if memory serves, his only addition to that system in regards to calcium or alkalinity was through Calquaster. Um, now he uses like 50 gallons a week, I think, um, you know, he stirs it up in a brute trash can and just drips it. Like, I think it's over a week. It might be over a few days. That demand has changed since the reboot, but, um, all three of these methods work. The other thing I'm, I'll mention briefly that I'm super excited about. Um, actually the note came from a friend, um, Ben Johnson, who I know you had on there, um, reef beef there. And, and he runs a, a installation maintenance company in Texas. And he, I, I was talking to him behind the scenes about this Tropic Marin product. Um, we're not talking, we're not completely we're not talking about their salt, are we? No, it's not their salt. <laughs> we're not going to get into it today. Um, it, it's, it's kind of an all in one dosing supplement. And to me, it reads a lot like Calquaster, but it's a little bit better. Um, it, it provides building blocks for all three of the coral building parameters. So alkalinity, calcium, and magnesium. It provides it provides things better than Calquaster would in that sense. Um, it's essentially a powder you mix into a liquid and you dose it, and it's a one-part solution versus a two-part solution. We're very intrigued by yeah. this, Keith. Simpler. Uh, especially when you can 
especially when you can buy it in bulk, in powder, and mix it up. And exactly, it's simpler. So like, I don't want anyone to think that we're trying to shortcut anything. We're, we're not. We're trying to eliminate variables that can cause a system to crash. Um, and so anytime we can simplify something, we do. So I believe the, the initial question was, do you always use Calquaxer with a calcium reactor? The answer is no. I would only use Calquaxer with a calcium reactor if you have a consistent low pH problem. The other option nowadays is some people are using these CO2 scrubbers, yeah. um, and that's a pretty cool device. It's something else to maintain. Um, you know, I have actually, I believe my coworker was telling me this. He has a small reef at home, gorgeous jam in Little Reef. Um, he implemented one of those because he had kind of a consistent chronic low pH problem. And, um, and then the next time we talked about it, he's like, I forgot to replace it for like two weeks. And the pH just went, bloop, you know, and dropped right back down and then hovered. He didn't have any major issues because of it, but it's just something else to maintain. Um, so with two part, we put in new buckets when they're empty. I added a, um, an air exchange unit to my, you know, my tanks are in, in my finished basement. And so I added an air sure. exchange unit and, uh, you know, being here in Vermont in the winter time, you know, the windows are shut tight. So it's, it's been great. You know, it's been, um, I've, I've been able to elevate my pH like by 0.2 pH points, which is, is big, you know, with the air exchange wow. unit. So, um, that definitely helped, but that's, you know, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. You know, perhaps uh, something cheaper would be putting a whole ton of house plants uh, in the same room with the uh, the fish tank to help absorb the uh, the carbon dioxide. I don't know, but uh, exactly. what what do you consider to be a, uh, an optimal pH in terms of running a you know a, a tank? What do you guys uh, strive for in terms of that range? <clears throat> the the first thing that comes to mind is wherever it lands, um, and that's going to drive some people nuts. But to ref to 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 go a little deeper. If your aquarium is not in a finished basement, if it's on a main floor, if it's in an office with windows, with doors that open from time to time, you're using a good synthetic salt, you have an aragonite substrate, so sand or gravel, and then you have some type of live rock in there. If your pH is 7, 8, 8, 2, doesn't matter. I would not try to chase a pH number. If you're in a basement, if you're in a small apartment where your windows aren't open much, where your doors don't open much, and your pH is 7.4 chronically, that's when we kind of want to look at buffering. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll also add, if your pH is 7.6 and all your corals and your fish are jamming, why are we chasing a number? Um, so we're, 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 we're targeting about 8.2. 8.0 to 8.2 is going to be my happy place for pH. But if I'm at 7.8, even 7.6, and all the animals are looking great, we're not going to Isn't that it. a key component here in terms of uh, maintaining a reef tank is to, you know, have that observation of the uh, the tank critters? Uh, you know, you guys, in terms of taking care of tanks, aren't there all the time unless the, uh, the client's got a webcam or something that you could, uh, you know, check out every day. But, um, you know, as hobbyists, that's a really important thing is to observe the tank. And I always try to do that. And, um, you can tell like when something is uh, not right with the tank, but, um, yeah, I always say that, um, if the, if everything is like just, uh, on cruise control, everything's looking great. Uh, you know, don't try to chase certain things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say that for all parameters, frankly, to a degree, you know, we, we want our coral building parameters and our nutrients to be within that, those, well-known ranges. Um, but you know, if you hear that Steve down the street is running a pH of 8.2 and alkalinity a little bit higher and his one coral looks better than your same species, or maybe even got the frag from him, 
be really careful when we're chasing those numbers because there's so many variables. There's so many other things that come into play um, that that it's probably not worth the effort and potentially the the harm to the other animals we'll do trying to trying to chase that. Um, so generally speaking, we're going to let pH, we're going to set up a new system and we're going to see where the pH sits. And then from there, we can kind of adjust things as needed. Um, the more animals you put in there, the less you're doing water changes, you know, your pH is going to continue to go down. Um, so anytime we can increase oxygen exchange, um, so pH is based on the available oxygen in the room compared to the CO2 in the room. That's why we get into trouble in smaller spaces or in closed off basements. We don't have that oxygen exchange that we might have upstairs or hell, if our tank's on the deck outside, if we're lucky enough to live in an environment like that. Um, you know, you would never face any pH issues if your tank was outside and you could keep the temperature yeah. stable because there's so much available oxygen in the yeah. space. So yeah. anything that we're doing to try and chase pH is actually based on the room we're in. It's not based on your tank. It's not based on really anything else. So if, if the tank and animals and inhabitants, like you said, Keith, look good during your daily observations, you're in good shape. I would add a, one quick thing. You mentioned the, the camera on the display tank. Um, back when I used to travel for my own small business and didn't have as many great coworkers as I do now, the camera was significantly more important to me than the app that showed random water parameters mm -hmm. because maybe Austin left the probe out after a water change or maybe the probe, whatever could be the case, if I'm looking at the tank and I can see my fish swimming and I can see my corals open during the day and I can tell roughly how big they open, things are in good shape. Um, that comes with experience though. You know, so so newer aquarists can can learn a lot from these little trending graphs that we can pull up from our aquarium controllers. Yeah, you know, and, and having eyes on the tank when you're not uh, there is is a great thing. You know, I, I have a live webcam on my 187 gallon tank. I do not have one on my peninsula tank, and uh, I got to try to figure out a way to have two of those things going at the same time. Um, I also have a nest cam on the uh, sump of my 187 gallon tank, and that is like a beautiful thing. I've got it hooked into my um, Proflux Four. So the, the Nest Cam is not even on. I mean, it, the only time it's on is when I want to look at it because then I go into the uh, the controller, I turn on the Nest Cam, and then I open up the app on my phone, and there's the sump. You know, so if, if you're on vacation, even though like something um, you know might not be detectable by the uh, by the controller in terms of uh, where the water level's at in the sump or the skimmer stopped working or something. Just having eyes on it, I've found has has been great because then um, if something does go wrong. You could boom, pull it right up, and you can just see what's happening with um, with the camera. So, I mean, is, is that something that you guys always try to um, you know talk clients into doing in terms of having some sort of webcam on their uh, systems? We always try to talk them into it. Very unsuccessful. <laughs> uh, it, they're not uh, that expensive. Our, I mean, a Nest Cam is like 150 bucks, if that. I was going to bring that up too. The unsuccessfulness has nothing to do with the cost. It has to do with privacy invasion. Mm. Um, there you so go. Most, most, of our clients, most of our local clients out here are, are, are not hobbyists. We, we love local hobbyists. I invite anyone that wants to come, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, email, whatever. Let's set up a time. We'll show you around the show and we'll have a great time. Um, but most of our clients are not uh, hobbyists and, and a lot of them have never had a, an aquarium at home. Um, so when I'm like, hey, we're going to set up this camera across from your aquarium strap it to the wall so we can keep an eye on it they say excuse me what um so we tend to have to rely on parameters and then we start to teach the clients what we're looking for i have been successful putting them in some life support rooms mm. um which is as you know almost as important as what's happening in the tank itself 
Keith, you, you had such a great point with how much they cost. I mean, when I first started doing more of this, a freaking little camera for your house was more than an aquarium controller. Yeah. You know, the the cost yeah. of entry was was not good. Now I'm pretty sure you can get like knockoff drop cams, like three for 150 bucks. I can't speak to the robustness of those systems, but but it, it's such a great thing we can do as hobbyists is to have an eye on the display tank when we're gone and then an eye on the life support system as well. I have personally used a camera on the life support system to walk someone through. Yeah. Keith, like you said, I can look at it. I can look at my sump. So this person had their hand on a valve and I'm literally watching on my phone. I said, nope, the next valve to your left. And they move their hand to left. Yes, that one. Turn that one on. And they're able to turn that on. So if you have your brother or your neighbor or someone who has no idea what's going on, um, my wife's really good with aquariums. She doesn't know what the hell any of those valves do, you know? So like I can talk to her over the phone or, or someone, um, and, and really help them through. And, and at the least it's peace of mind at the most, it could completely save your system. Uh, if you need a little helping hand there. Yeah, for sure. On my uh, display tank, I have what's called an access network camera. It's like an IP camera and it, you know, it took a little work in terms of getting it set up, but, um, I'm live streaming it on YouTube 24 seven. And, uh, you know, nice. so that's free, you know, I'm not paying a live streaming cost for that, um, that camera to be, uh, you know, I'm showing my display tank. So that, that's been, you know, certainly something that, uh, I tune into a lot when I'm not around to, uh, see what's going on. But yeah, I, I'm a bit, a bit big, uh, advocate of cameras for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. all right, Austin, man, I, um, I think, uh, I've had you, um, for uh, close to an hour and 45 minutes here, man. So um, maybe we'll just uh, have to have you come back to uh, continue the uh, discussion. But any uh, any final words, man, in terms of, uh, you know, this maintenance conversation, any uh, top tips you want to leave folks with? You know, uh, we got down some really wonderful tangents. So there's a few things, Keith, we didn't get to. So I'll just touch on a couple of things. Um, just keep in mind, everybody, that like aquariums are like prophylactic maintenance on our car. You know, we have to do the oil changes. We have to change the tires. If we don't, we're going to seize up the engine. We're going to get a flat, whatever it is, except we're not just going to be stuck on the side of the road. We're going to be killing animals if we're not doing this prophylactic maintenance. So the bigger water changes I discussed, you know, maybe it's significantly more than what we're doing. It's all to prevent that hiccup or it's all to prepare for that inevitable hiccup. We've had a couple of big hiccups with some of our maintenance tanks that we never saw coming. We didn't lose anything, not a one, because we were on top of it. Now, we have losses in our tanks, don't get me wrong. But some of these things, because we're constantly on top of it, constantly basically a step ahead of nature trying to destroy our little glass boxes, it goes a long way. And to tie into that would just be backup equipment. Have your backup equipment. You know, it's I know it's a tough pill to swallow, but rather than that next coral that you've been eyeing, get that next that backup return pump in there. Because if you don't have that, all your corals are in trouble, uh, not just the one coral you're bringing in. The final thing that I really was going to chat about a little bit was disaster prep. Mm -hmm. And some of that goes into your backup equipment. You know, if a, a lot of times if we have backups for any major component, you know, your corals can be fine without lights for honestly three to five days. Most corals would be totally fine without that. SPS three days, try and get yeah. something going. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the critical components can really, if you have those, the power head, the supply pump, you don't need a ton of disaster prep. The, the final thing for disaster prep would be backup power. Um, and we've seen people in regions, you know, I've got some really great friends in Austin, Texas, 
um, who had to go through just a horrifying experience last winter when the grid completely took a crap. Um, you know, and they lost power gas. I mean, we had clients that had backup gas power generators, like natural gas power generators are supposed to kick on instantaneously. They didn't turn on because the gas wasn't flowing for them. So that's an extreme version. I mean, that client was super prepared. Thankfully that was a brand new tank. There's no fish in it, but I had a lot of friends and I have a really good friend down there who installs tanks for a living and his clients had just really, really tough times. So have a generator. Uh, don't. Yeah. I actually, I Go actually ahead. have two. I've got a full backup automatic, you know, full house backup automatic generator as well as a portable propane um, generator. And I once did have a full house automatic backup generator uh, crap out on me, but uh, luckily I'd broken the tank down a few weeks before that happened. But uh, yeah, I I can't agree with you more in terms of having that backup power. It's critical. You never know, even though, like in an area that you never lose power, all it takes is one time, and one you're time. you're done exactly. And then you're six, 10, whatever years of work is like, um, battery backups, they're becoming more available, more, more affordable. Uh, I have a giant one I carry around in my camper van that like my wife and I can live off of for like three or four (laughs) days. You could power an aquarium for quite a while off that. Keep in mind the little battery backups that we have for power heads that are available. Those are going to only run for, you know, a, a short period of time. Um, I view those type of backup powers as uh, a crutch until we get a gas generator in there. Um, I, I don't rely on them for, well, that'll indefinitely save my tank. No, it'll, it'll save your tank while you're away at work. It'll save your tank if you're out to dinner, you know, and a movie for, for six hours or whatever. That's a long dinner and movie, but you get my point. Those are really to tie us over until we can get a gas power generator and start plugging our stuff yeah. in there. Um, so I, I guess in closing, you know, all the backup equipment, the disaster prep and prophylactic equipment, uh, prophylactic maintenance is is all about these animals we're bringing in oftentimes from nature or bringing them in from a breeder. When they're in our hands, it's completely on us to make sure that they can live long, healthy lives. And with today's tremendous equipment and knowledge and people like you, Keith, sharing all of this knowledge, like we kind of have pretty little excuses to have big issues. Most of the issues we see are caused by us as Aquarius. And I'm not, uh, I'm a victim to that too. Um, we all are, but it's important that we keep our, our best foot forward, keep our morals high and try to get these animals to live uh, long, healthy lives. We can get them to live longer than they can in nature nowadays without a doubt. Um, so that should always be our Yeah. Goal. Well, all right, man, on that note, I guess we're going to, uh, we're going to wrap it up and, and thank you, Austin, man, again, for uh, coming on the show. Great uh, conversation. Would definitely like to have you come back at some point uh, down the road. There's a uh, just a ton of things to talk about with you, man. We love it. We love it. I'll get a little different outline together next time, and uh, maybe I'll even sit in front of an aquarium, and we'll we'll really take cool. it up here. All right. Well, everybody, thank you uh, for tuning in. That'll do it for tonight's live stream. I also want to thank um, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for sponsoring the uh, the live stream and supporting the show, and um, also uh, you folks for. Um, um, having the conversations in the chat, asking all the questions. Well, I also want to let you, uh, everybody know that all episodes of Rapping with Reef Bum are now available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. My next live stream will be next Thursday at um, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the 24th of February, with Fan Thine from Tidal Gardens. So that should be another great conversation. Looking forward to having uh, Than on the uh, live stream once again. So until then, everybody uh, be safe out there, and we'll see you next time.